I'd like for you to think for a moment about the most difficult living situation that you've been in. What I mean by that is think back to that house or that apartment or that dorm room or whatever it may be that really just wasn't right. And what was it about that place that you were staying or living that was so burdensome? Was it was it too small? Was it not designed to meet your needs or for the needs of your family? Was the commute to work or school too far away? Was it that the roommates that you were living with made it such a difficult living situation? Was it the neighborhood that you were in? Was it unsafe? Did you not get along with those that you were living near? Was the house itself perhaps run down and you were spending so much money on repairs and seemed like every week or so something new needed to be fixed? Perhaps the house was uh, infested with bugs or prone to flooding or mold or whatever it may be. What was it about that situation that made it so difficult to live there day after day? I want you to try to remember back to what it was like living there. Now, some of you are saying, remember, I don't have to remember. That's, what I, that's where I am right now. <laughs> that's where my experience is right now. And perhaps some of you, as you think back, you don't think back on a particular house. Maybe you're thinking back on a period of homelessness or incarceration or whatever it may be. But think for a moment about that living situation, about that that place which was difficult to be. And while you're thinking of that, what I want to know is how would you feel if in the middle of that situation someone came and offered to build you a new house? No expense spared. All of it paid for. The highest quality craftsmanship. A new situation, whether it's a, a new dorm room for you to stay in, a new apartment to live in, a new house for your family to be in. Some situation which far exceeds your highest expectations. Meets every need that you have. The perfect living situation for you. The reason I'm asking you to go through this bit of a thought exercise is that this morning we want to use an analogy to try to help explain some of the teaching that Peter has for us in the epistle of 1 Peter. As we've begun this series in 1 Peter, we've been going through some introductions of the most important characters. And the first week we met Peter himself. And we saw how God transformed this man from being a stumbling block to being a solid rock. Last week we met ourselves and saw how God addressed us as elect exiles, chosen by God, yet alienated from the world. Well, this morning we want to meet the most important character of all, and that is God. So if you have your Bible, would you turn to the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. If you're using one of the church Bibles, it's page 980. 980, 1 Peter chapter 1. And just like last week, we used the example of marriage to try to help better understand 
uh, what Peter was telling us about ourselves. This week we want to use an analogy related to a difficult living situation and being moved out of that living situation into a brand new, beautiful, spacious house or apartment or whatever it may be. An amazing experience. We're going to begin in verse number three, at least to get the context for what we're going to talk about. In verse three, Peter writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Peter wants to introduce us to God, but in order to know who God is, it's important to begin with what God does. And while God, God does lots and lots of stuff, for Peter, the most important thing, which is the thing he kicks off his epistle talking about, is that God is a Savior. That He's the one who rescues us. That He takes death and turns it into life. That He gives us an inheritance that can never perish spoil or fade, that he grants us eternal life, that he protects us, that he has an eternal dwelling for us. Now sometimes, and I admit this is true for me, when you hear the word salvation, it can feel like a theological word rather than a reality. It feels like a word on a page that you read and say, salvation, yes, I'm saved, whatever it may be. But in order to try to grasp that reality, this is why I've asked you to engage in this thought experiment. In many ways, to think of what it's like to be given salvation. In many ways, it's like moving out of a very difficult situation. If you live in a home that is too small or too crowded or doesn't meet your needs or is constantly in need of repairs or having things fixed, and somehow a new situation opens up to you and you move from one into the other, it can feel like, like you're turning a new page in life. I remember when Lisa and I moved from a very small university apartment in England to our first home. There was just something about that. It just felt like life was new, like something new was starting. And when we moved from that small starter house, which we had outgrown and had too many kids for, when God opened the door for us to move into a, a place that now fit our family's needs, it was like a new lease on life. It felt like a new start. It felt like that old was left behind. In many ways, this is sort of a metaphor for what God has done for us in salvation. And what salvation is, is God giving us a new living situation, a new place to be. It includes a new eternal dwelling in heaven, but also a, a new place here on earth to be part of. Well, this is what God does and we need that to understand who God is. Because where we're going to spend our time this morning is not in verse 3, but back in verse 2. Verse 2 is where Peter actually introduces us to this God who moves us out of a terrible living situation into an amazing living situation. And this is how Peter introduces him to us. Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit 
to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. The one word that we would use to describe God according to this introduction is the word triune. Triune, it's the adjective form of the word trinity. When we say that we believe that God is triune, Yune means that he's one. Tri means that he's three. And what we affirm, what Peter is communicating here, is that we worship one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons. Father, Son, Jesus, and Holy Spirit. And that these three distinct persons are one God. What we mean by that is, is that all of the power and perfections that the Holy Spirit has, Jesus has. And all of the power and perfections that Jesus has, the Father has. They are completely equal. All of the attributes of the Father are true of the Son. And all of the things that are true of the Son are true of the Holy Spirit. They are one. Not only are they one, meaning equal in power and in perfection, but they are one because they are united in purpose. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit always work together in perfect harmony to accomplish what God is accomplishing. But the oneness of God, the idea that God is one. This is often emphasized in the scriptures. For example, later in Peter's epistle, he will make the statement, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And the question is, well, wait a minute, does that mean the Father opposes the proud? Or does that mean that Jesus opposes the proud? Or does that mean that the Holy Spirit opposes the proud? Well, the answer is yes. Because God is one, and in that passage, it's the oneness of God that's on focus. God, God opposes the proud. The one God that we worship is against pride and lifts up the humble. In that passage, it's the oneness of God that comes to the forefront. However, in Peter's introduction of God here, it's not the oneness that he's focusing on but the fact that God exists in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they are distinguished based on the different roles that they play in our salvation. God the Father, who does the choosing, the Spirit who does the work of sanctification, and the Son with whose blood we are sprinkled. Now, what does this mean? Well, here's where we want to make use of our analogy. Think about that situation where you're living in, a, in an apartment that's just too small, it doesn't meet your needs, perhaps it's, a, it's infested or, 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 or has mold in it or, or has a problem with flooding or terrible neighbors or bad roommates or whatever it may be. Imagine that you live in that situation and someone comes along and offers to build you a new house. 
offers to give you a brand new house beyond anything you could have ever expected, meets all your needs, built with the highest quality craftsmanship. Well, in order for that to happen, for you to move out of that apartment into that beautiful home, a couple of different roles have to be played or a couple of different things have to happen. First, in order for that house to get built, you're going to need somebody who's an architect, a developer, a general contractor, someone who's going to plan what this house is going to look like. How's it going to be situated on the lot? How big is it going to be? How many bedrooms is it going to have? How are they going to be located next to one another? You're going to meet somebody who's like that architect who can plan the whole thing, who can figure out how much is this going to cost? How's it going to get paid for? How do we line up all of the people who are going to be doing the work? And that person, that architect, developer, general contractor, that person or persons are necessary if you're going to get that house built. The second person or group of persons you're going to need are the people who are going to actually build the house. It's great to have plans. It's wonderful to have blueprints. But at some point, somebody's got to swing a hammer. Amen. Somebody's got to put up the drywall. Somebody's got to do the plumbing. Somebody's got to landscape the house. And if you're going to get this new house, you're going to have to have the skilled tradespeople who are going to do the work of building the house. Third, you're also going to need a realtor, a banker, moving company, somebody to get you into the house. It's great to have wonderful plans. It's great to have a house that's built in accordance with those wonderful plans. But until you actually move from your location into that house, it doesn't do you any good. And so you need someone who puts the title in your name, somebody who helps move your stuff in, somebody who helps you get used to this new house and all of the amazing features and helps you enjoy the experience. Well, in our analogy, God the Father is the architect. He's the one who has planned salvation. This is his idea how this is going to work. He's the one who chooses the people who get to participate in salvation. It was God the Father's idea that Jesus would die on the cross for our salvation. God the Father has orchestrated and planned the whole thing. He's the one who's decided when Jesus is going to return. This is all happening according to the Father's plan. He's the architect of salvation. Well, if that is true, that means that Jesus is the builder. He's the one who actually does the work of salvation. He's the one that takes the plans that the Father has come up with and makes them a reality. Jesus is the one who becomes human. Jesus is the one who calls and trains the disciples. Jesus is the one who dies on the cross. Jesus is the one who's raised from the dead. Jesus is the one who's present with us this morning as we celebrate his supper. Jesus is the one who will return when the Father has planned and set up a kingdom on earth. It will be Jesus who does these things. He's the builder who takes the plans and makes them a reality. This is why he says in John's gospel, hey, look, I'm not here doing this on my own. 
The Father has told me what to do and everything I'm doing, I'm doing in accordance with exactly what God told me to do. The Father drew the blueprints. Jesus showed up and said, I'm building the house exactly the way the Father drew it. Which means in our analogy that the Holy Spirit is the realtor. The Holy Spirit is the one who gets us moved into this new life, this new salvation. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us of sin. The Holy Spirit is the one who convinces us that the place we live now is not where we want to stay. This is not where we belong. The Holy Spirit is the one who helps us to believe. The Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us all things. The Holy Spirit is the one who shows us how to pray. The Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us to experience and enjoy the salvation that the Father has designed and that the Son has built. The Holy Spirit is the realtor, the moving company the banker, the one who makes it all happen so this amazing salvation is now ours. This is how Peter introduces God to us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The architect, the builder, and the realtor of salvation. Now why does Peter introduce God to us this way? because I think he wants us at the beginning of his epistle, before he talks to us about suffering, before he talks to us about difficult things, he wants to tell us up front that God is in charge of the project from beginning to end. From the design, from the planning, from the building, all the way to the moving in. It's God from beginning to end. You see, if you've got a great architect, but a bad builder, it's not gonna work out for you. If you got a great builder, but a bad realtor, it's not gonna work out for you. If you got a great realtor, but your moving company breaks all your stuff, the move's not gonna be very good. What Peter's trying to say is, look, from start to finish, it's God all the way through. It's not like he designed salvation and then turned it over to the government or the church or to you and I and say, here, try to make this happen. No, God designed it and then God built it. And it's not just that God designed it and God built it and then turned it over to us and said, hey, try to move in. Try to enjoy it. Try to make good use of it. No, no, no. God designed it. God built it. And God is moving us into it. And Peter wants us to know from beginning to end, it is God. Our salvation is being accomplished by God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Our salvation is designed, built, and executed by God himself. It's not entrusted to you. It's not entrusted to me. It's not entrusted to the church. It's not entrusted to the world. Nobody but God himself is the author of salvation. He designed it. He built it. And he's giving it to us. Now this is the general introduction that Peter wants us to meet this God who's in control of everything from beginning to end. But before we leave verse 2, 
You see, the general categories of the Father as the planner, the Son as the one who does, and the Spirit as the one who makes it a reality, those will show up throughout the book of 1 Peter. But in the beginning, there is one thing that God does in relation to salvation that Peter mentions that we want to talk about because it's something that the Father has planned, that the Son has executed, and that the Spirit has made real for you and I. And it's something that Peter highlights in the second verse. And the reason why I know that he highlights it is that throughout Scripture, when we're going to talk about our triune God, when we're going to talk about the Trinity, the standard order is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Here in the introduction, Peter has pulled the Son out and put him at the end. And that's because there's a specific phrase associated with Jesus that Peter's trying to highlight. And it's the phrase, sprinkled with his blood. Sprinkled with his blood. Now that's a strange sounding phrase. Even if you've been a Christian for a long time, it's a strange sounding phrase. We're used to phrases like, redeemed by his blood or justified by his blood. But Peter does not choose to make either one of those statements. Instead, he says, sprinkled by his blood. Now, what does that mean? Well, go back to our house analogy. If you're living in a very difficult living situation and someone comes along and offers to build you this new house and they say, we'll design it, We'll build it. We'll take care of moving you into it. Even if they say, we'll pay for the whole thing, we'll take care of everything, there's still something that you and I must do. And that is, we must sign the contract. We've got to sign the title. The house does not become ours until we sign for it. Even if somebody has paid for it, even if somebody has built it, even if somebody has done all of the work, even if there's going to be somebody there making sure that we enjoy every moment and we still have to sign the title. You've still got to sign the contract or it's not your house. Sprinkled with his blood is contractual language. It's the language of contracts. And it comes out of the Old Testament specifically a verse in Exodus chapter 24. In Exodus 24, God is making a covenant or a contract with Israel. This is the moment at which Israel becomes the people of God. And in this ceremony, there is a verse, verse 8, that says, Moses then took the blood, so we killed some bull, he killed, killed some bulls, took half the blood and splashed it on the altar, which represented God's portion of this. And then this verse, he took the other half, sprinkled it on the people. See that? Sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. Covenant is just an Old Testament word for contract. That God was making a contract with Israel and so Bulls were killed because the idea that this contract was going to be signed in blood meant that this was a serious deal. 
that you were supposed to recognize the seriousness of this, that death itself was the only thing that would break the contract. So contracts were signed in blood. Half the blood in this case is splashed on the altar to show God putting his name on it. Half the blood is sprinkled on the people when they agree to obey. What Peter is saying in 1 Peter 1 verse 2 is that if you are here and you're not yet a believer in Jesus, what he wants you to know is that God has designed and has built and is ready to move you into a new living situation. You see, when we use this house idea, when we talk about moving houses, when we talk about moving into a beautiful, spacious, well-designed living space, this is a metaphor for a new life. That when we say, is the place that you live too crowded? Is it too small? Is it in need of repairs? Uh, are, are you stuck in a, in a situation where you're homeless? The point is, is that this is a question about your life. Is your life in need of repairs? Is your life too small? Do you feel like your life is infested with sin? Do you feel like you're incarcerated to your own desires? Do you feel like you're a restless wanderer? The question is, is God is offering to you a new life. Not just a new house, a new life, a completely new life designed, built, and brought about by God himself. But Peter's point to you this morning, if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, is this. You've got to sign the contract. If you sign the contract, it's yours. Listen to me. The house is already built. It's already designed for your particular needs. And God is ready to move you into it. What's required is you must sign the contract. You've got to take ownership of the house. It's not enough to simply tour the house. It's not enough to tour other people's houses. God's saying, I want to give this to you. This is your life I've designed for you. And then you've got to sign on the dotted line and say, I'll take ownership of it. See, the reason why it says sprinkled with Jesus' blood Remember in the Old Testament, half the blood went on the altar, showing God signed it. Half the blood went on the people to show that they were signing it. In the person of Jesus, God is signing this contract and saying, if you will accept his blood, his death, as applying to you, that's how you sign the contract. What Jesus is saying is, look, the Father has designed a new life for you. I've built it. My spirit will help move you into it. All you have to do is sign this contract in my blood. He's even given us the ink for the contract. And if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, the point is, is God is offering to you a new life. It includes an eternal dwelling. It includes an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. But it also includes eternal life that begins now. Forgiveness for your sins. Peace in the midst of suffering. Joy that is inexplicable. God's presence as you walk through the journeys of life. God's mercies when you mess up. All this, relationships that are fulfilling and that are meaningful. All this God is offering to you. And saying it's ready for you. Just sign the contract. And when you accept that Jesus died for you, you've put pen to paper and you take possession of your new life.
Now, if you are a believer, if you're a Christian, what this means for you and I is that it's time to celebrate communion. See, when we come to communion, we normally quote, or we often quote from 1 Corinthians, which is great. That's a great passage. But listen to what Jesus says in the book of Matthew when he goes through the Last Supper. Listen to his wording. Then he, Jesus, took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my, what? Blood of the covenant. Recognize that language? That's Exodus 24. Jesus is saying, this is a representation of the fact that my blood signs the contract, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Communion is a contract remembrance celebration. We come to this moment and we remember last year or 10 years ago or 20 years ago, I signed a contract and this new life that I'm experiencing, this eternal life that I'm looking forward to, it's because of what he did. It's because of what God did in designing, building, and making available this life to me. And that we come to this time and we remember. You know, sometimes if you've lived in a new home for a long time, you can forget what it was like where you were before. You can forget how cramped that first apartment was. You can forget how difficult it was in to live in that dorm in which too many students were stuffed into one room. You can forget all of those things and we come to communion and we're remembering this new life that we're enjoying, this new life that we're experiencing. It's all possible because God designed it, God built it, and God is moving us into it. And at communion, we come back and we remember the time when we signed that contract. And we look back and we say, thank you to God for all he is doing and all he will do.